So again, we just heard from the religious scholar who coined the term prophetic imagination, our theme for today. He coined it in several editions of his book of the same name. Dr. Brugman is certainly coming from a liberal Christian perspective in his analysis. And as a member of the United Church of Christ, Dr. Brugman is touching on the difference between history and art, dogma and faith, in much the same way uh, Dr. Reza Aslan does, whom we've talked about quite a bit this, uh, this spring, it seems. Like Aslan, Brugman is personally concerned with the rigidity of dogma that's built upon literal or at least face value interpretations of scripture. When doctrine and dogma determine the meaning of a text, in this case the Bible, but it really applies to any text, then the power of the individual to have their own interpretations is lost. Brugman is particularly interested in the parts of the, the Hebrew scriptures which are not linear and not even stories. He instead centers his studies and devotions around the Psalms, which are collections of poetry and prayer and distinctly non-narrative. He finds in the poetry of the Psalms an artistic expression of the faith of the Hebrew people, an expression that is, like all art, subject to the observer's interpretation. In focusing on the poetry and scripture, Brugman says, there is an explicit opening for individuals to glean their own value, their own inspiration, their own meaning from the text in a way that following the accounting of Jesus' ministry in the Synoptic Gospels or the story of Exodus in the Hebrew Scriptures does not, or at least not to the same extent. Adopting dogma or doctrinal law as the only valid interpretation of Scripture, on the other hand, fixes the meaning of the text in time and in a single perspective. Given that our situations as human beings have changed and continue to do so, that single interpretation may or may not remain relevant. So Bergman says, at the very least, interpretations of Scripture should be subject to reevaluation based on new conditions and understandings. Now, Bruggen also points to the actual events in history, both positive and negative, which forever change the perspective of a people. The destruction of the Second Temple at Jerusalem by the Romans in the year 70 of the Common Era was as cataclysmic and impactful an event to Jews living in first century Judea as the collapse of two skyscrapers one bright September morning in 2001 was for Americans. The fall of the temple in 70 CE was a watershed event that would spawn not one but two distinctly new religions. That of Christianity, of course, but also of the modern synagogue-based Jewish faith. So revolutionary was the impact that preconceived notions of faith, 
society and the very nature of human beings were all thrown into question. Out of the great tragedy and abuse of the Romans came two of the most influential religions in the world to this day. Now, we actually have a similar crisis point to to look to in our direct spiritual history, one that would forever change the shape of Western religion, at least on these shores. In the earliest days of the colonies that would eventually become the New England region of the United States, a fanatical, doctrinal people arrived on these shores. Now, the Puritans, contrary to popular belief, weren't kicked out of England because England was too strict religiously. The Puritans abandoned England because they themselves could not tolerate the religious acceptance England displayed for different Christian sects. Envisioning a city on a hill, that that famous quote from John Winthrop describing Boston as the center of a new theocracy where the purest form of Christianity could reign supreme, the Puritans quickly set up a rigid form of church-led government where the magistrates and ministers were one and the same and where harsh punishments were imposed upon citizens for even the most minor of sins. So concerned that their Christian paradise would be usurped by a centralized power as it had been in England, the Puritans did one very revolutionary thing. Just about all the parish pastors in the region gathered in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1648, representing 65 local congregations, debated and drafted a document affirming certain elements of Christian theology, but more importantly, naming the individual church the highest authority on truth. Congregations were responsible to each other, of course, but the ultimate power was held by members of any one congregation, and by extension their minister, but the church themselves got to choose their minister. This was really the beginning of what's known as congregational polity, polity meaning church governments. This is more often simply called congregationalism. Now this was all well and good and it kept the Church of England from imposing too many restrictions on the New England churches, but there was that one problem of the church being the government. Laws, juries, judges, and sentencing were all indelibly tied to the whims of church leadership and the rigid, unchanging dogma they followed. Now, it's not surprising, therefore, that a couple of generations later, almost exactly 50 years later, a crisis would rock the New England churches. You know what I'm talking about? The witch trials. Centered in Salem, but with effects felt throughout Connecticut and Massachusetts, which, remember, included all of what we now know as Maine, by the way, the governmental religious authorities succumbed to hysteria and began executing citizens for the crime of witchcraft. Possibly fueled by the stories of a Caribbean slave named Tituba, 
the harsh treatment of women, particularly girls in Puritan New England, eating tainted grain known to have psychedelic effects, or some combination of all three. Two girls, aged nine and 11, fell into fits and eventually accused people in their village of witchcraft and sorcery. A scant 16 months later, 200 people across the region would be accused and tried for witchcraft, dozens convicted, and 20 citizens, mostly women, executed. Now this might have seemed as a temporary victory for the puritanical theocracy, but very quickly, the handling of the case began to draw criticism from the victims' families and other religious authorities. Even the Puritans themselves began to feel some shame for their actions. And over the subsequent generations, the formerly Puritan churches became increasingly progressive. So progressive, in fact, by, that by the year 1800, almost exactly 100 years after the witch trials, the majority of the New England churches were no longer Trinitarian, but it started to affirm a simpler, more progressive idea of divinity known as, say it with me, Unitarianism. Fantastic. Now, because of the Cambridge platform and the Congregationalism that was still in effect, remember that document from 1648, each church in the region got to vote as to whether it would remain Trinitarian or adopt the Unitarian stance. Now, invariably, not everyone agreed with what their parish church, again, the, the church of the town, voted. So new competing churches started springing up, often directly across the square from the original parish church. Now, this is important because this is really the beginning of people having a choice of which church to join and what theology to profess. So ironically, the most fundamentalist Christian group on these shores in our earliest days created not only the idea of congregationalism, which we still follow as Unitarian Universalist churches, by the way, but also the ability and eventually the right for people to choose religious affiliation. Now, scholars like Brugman might very well identify the witch trials as the beginning of the end of the Puritan theocracy and also the beginning of religious freedom on these shores. And it was the very crisis of the trials that broke open the cultural resistance to change necessitated it and implicitly called on the imagination of the people to find a better way. The imagination of the people. So I guess what's missing from this, this sentiment of prophetic imagination is, is that there is an element of positivity that's necessary as well. A positive, hopeful imagination that looks to what might yet come, despite, often because of the tragedies of the past. 
In this way, having a truly prophetic imagination requires a solid understanding of history and those seminal events that throw the world into chaotic motion, recognizing that the, the future is reflexive of the past, but need not be wholly repetitive. It requires, as Bonnie Kennedy reminds us, to not only ask why about the conditions that exist, but why not about those better conditions yet to be realized. It requires us to cultivate and live into optimism about the potential for a better future while at the same time to be honest about the injustices which abound and need to be addressed if we are to succeed in our hopeful progress. But this is, in fact, what this church, this entire faith, is really about. From our earliest ancestors on these shores who had to acknowledge the incredible injustice of the witch trials in order to affirm the rights of conscience and religious freedom, we too must look to the ills of our world and believe we can do better. We have to look at racial oppression manifest in our housing policies, our po policing and incarceration practices, our wealth divide and access to education, and still hold in our hearts that little spark of celestial fire called hope that we might make a positive impact, a change for the good. We have to look at the environmental crisis evident in our rising oceans, depleted air, alarming extinction rate, and biodiversity loss, and feel not despair, but inspiration to work towards their solution. We have to look at our divisive politics and media, acknowledge the almighty economic factors driving our polarization, and know that we can and will do better. But no individual can keep hope alive, alone, for long. It takes a community, often a community of faith, to ground one's hope in the truth of optimism. And our optimistic truth is this. We are all loved. We are all deserving of love. We are all responsible for loving. We are all loved. We are all deserving of love. We are all responsible for loving. We believe in the potential of all people to do and be good, and that those of us with the most privilege and autonomy have the most obligation to make an impact. We all despair at times. We all lament our failings and failures. We all miss the mark time and time and time again, but we have our spiritual ancestors and each other to keep us on the path towards hope, knowing that though we may not get there in our own lifetimes, the lifetimes of those who come after us will benefit from our efforts. That in these times, all times really, but especially in these times, when the stakes are so high, the implications so global, 
our only logical governing ethic is indeed universalism, which tells us that no one is able to be separated from the whole, that what affects one directly affects all indirectly, that justice anywhere is a step towards justice everywhere, and that we are ever tasked to choose love over fear. If we can only rest in love, our hope will come and our actions will follow. What kind of world can you imagine? May it be so. Blessed be and amen.